sciences on what is it that you're doing when you're taking these acetic acids and, and other things and putting them together? And, and how do you have this uh, ferment in a safe way? How do you store it in a safe way? And then you have marketing and then you have, you know, the, the craft of how do you create an art and create a product that you can actually make in large batches um, and, and distribute. And so they not only help the, uh, the winery businesses here in Illinois, but also, um, you know, several of the other uh, alcohol businesses and things like, you know, you can you practically turn over and see kimchi everywhere these days, you know, it used to be the specialty <laughs> market, you know, in, in larger, larger cities. And so they've, they've got some really cool things going on. The, um, I'm a, I'm quite a fan. So I, I work for the cannabis grow facility by the airport. Um, I just got a job being their marketing person a couple months ago, oh, great. Uh, but we, but we've had, you know, the development of a cannabis uh, instituted SIU for for some time, right? And the way that, you know, it's one thing for these types of things to pop up around the country and it's like, oh, you know, such and such junior college now has a cannabis program, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, how about this school that has one of the top ag programs in the nation that's kind of settled into, you know, this proper space of rural America for a multitude of research activities beyond just, hey man, this is pop, but like, okay, what can you do with you know, the cannabis sativa plant, um, and, and turn it into anything from industrials like paper and, and, uh, you know, biofuels to, you know, recreational consumption. It's just, it's my uh, youngest daughter is a bud tender in Oregon. Nice. Yeah. How, uh, how long has she been in the industry for? Mm, Three years, maybe two or three. No, I guess it's only been two. Yeah. Does she has she made a critique of the industry coming home and seeing what Illinois is versus what it's like out in Oregon? Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> she came out. She both my daughters and my one granddaughter came out and got to see mom before she passed away in October. And Alex is like, "Do you mind if we go over to consume? Because I really want to see what products you guys have." Lol. And so we went there, and she was laughing most of the time. <sighs> um, I mean, she was literally calling her boyfriend and say, do you believe they pay $30 for this? I mean, it's like six bucks in Eugene, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it seemed like our prices were way, way, way more. And that so, was before the tax. It, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a uh, mature market versus an immature market, I think is part of it. That is, that is absolutely the case. And I am, it's, it's exciting to be like in it while things are changing. Cause like uh, I'm, we're getting ready to see a, a massive change in how the cannabis industry operates in Illinois in just a year. Right. And I guess, I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't even know whether or not in uh, these other States, you know, if they started out similar to Illinois or if they just started out dirt cheap and were like, let it ride. Uh- <laughs> well, with Oregon, the way she explained it um, and she wasn't there at the time, uh, but she said that, you know, the people who owned the company that she was part of or is part of um, said that, you know, the, the whole thing about how you had to have growers from within the state because it's state by state regulation mm-hmm. on the labs and whatnot. And so she said um, there was actual overproduction uh, when they were ramping up, getting ready for legalization. Uh-huh. And then it went legal and the market was flooded, but they couldn't sell it out of state. And so then prices completely dropped. Yeah, and she said they'd worked their way up a little bit, but um, but I was out there in February before every that was my last trip, and um, 
<laughs> no pun intended. And um, <laughs> girl. <laughs> and uh, and so um, it was funny to me to be there because there's a there's a illegal cannabis location store every other block. Yeah. I mean, it's just everywhere. And so when she was here, she was shocked that it's, you know, consume here in, in Marion and I'm not sure where else, but um, not a lot of places. So, well, I was part of the, the group that actually um, helped prepare a white paper on um, what the state legislature should consider from a public health and social justice framework mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, done by the Illinois Public Health Institute the year before um, it actually became legal here. And that really did help shape our law quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. The, um, and I don't, don't take it where you want to take it when I, when I express like, what do you, do you have any continuing concerns for components? Like, did we meet our social justice markers? Like we thought we wanted to set them in place for, I don't know uh, that I've seen the data on it. Yeah. And so, um, and the fact that it became legal the year that COVID hit yeah, um, has really <laughs> impinged our ability to, to get some of the data that we would have because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of the things from the public health side had to happen through the state health department. And they were already very, very um, stretched thin in terms of the e-vaping outbreak that mm-hmm. was related to uh, some of the lung injuries and yeah. the contaminated uh, um pot basically or or e-vaping that was taken uh, that had taken place so, so illinois was front and center in that outbreak nationally yeah and you know it was funny because i was going over it with one of my classes in january the beginning of january and i said you know we should be really proud of what illinois has been able to do to kind of surface this outbreak and mm-hmm. and help you know investigate what's going on and, and what is it in the components that is causing the illness and yeah. it's national. And so I was showing my students how to track the numbers on the CDC website, what was being detected nationally. Mm-hmm. And then the data just stopped as basically everything turned towards COVID because we were watching COVID mm-hmm. in you know China and we were, these things don't just stay in their own countries usually you know people (laughs) breathe and they travel and they've been breathing and they have been traveling and therefore you have spread Uh you know um and so we had been watching you know a lot of people would say oh i can't believe this happened and it's like well epis do believe that it would happen not necessarily that moment but when this started to brewing in china many of us were pretty concerned that we would be seeing this here Mm -hmm. um and so obviously we had hoped that it wouldn't be this bad but we are where we are that's right now um and god that was a that was a dark segue to do an intro but here we are like yeah. sometimes you just got to work with the realities in which we're we're operating and this is going to be one of those conversations that probably has a lot of that like hard-hitting reality in it um episode 30 of the wtf carbondale podcast where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and we tie it all back together at this little place we call home carbondale illinois uh sarah patrick mph masters of public health correct phd and i couldn't actually tell you what phd stands for doctor what? of philosophy philosophy doctor yeah okay cool <laughs> and there's a reason why i don't have a phd of yeah. the mini <laughs> well so. i remember when i was in grad school i said phd but i'm getting a doctorate in epidemiology and they're like no it's it's a doctorate in philosophy in epidemiology it's like okay got it <laughs> and you so you had when we were talking we were setting this interview up and and bruce um 
God bless his soul, uh, <laughs> connected us. Um, you were, you were telling me like, okay, so, so the best way to describe what your background was coming into where you're at now was the movie contagion. So epidemiologists are often called disease detectives. Okay. And so we're, we're interested in is the distribution of disease and risk factors in the population. So we're always trying to look at, you know, what is that group of people that might be affected and how might it be affecting them? And what do we need to look for in terms of uh, what could be intervened upon so that we could try to help populations be self mm -hmm. or uh, be safe and uh, and to take care of themselves? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so succinct, like listening, listening to somebody who like does this and just. Mm -hmm how how plain the descriptions can be of something so very very complex um i mean do you see it as as something really complex or are you one of those folks that kind of boils it down into oh it's really just the simple as here's these numbers here and these people doing this thing um i don't think of it as simple but i do think of epidemiology as being a way of looking at the world that can be used for almost anything, you know, and so people usually tease folks in public health because we see public health in just about anything you do with in your life. Mm -hmm. And so I've been part of some different business think groups and think tanks and whatnot. And, and usually when you have somebody from the outside come in and talk to a bunch of public health people, they're like, well, you guys focus, you know, it's like you're <laughs> everywhere, you do everything. And we're, we just smile and go, yeah, exactly. Because we don't necessarily know today what it is that's going to be the problem tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be a broad thinker, but you do have to be able to drill down to details too. That's part of the uh, science and uh, epidemiology is considered the founding science of public health, which mm -hmm. we're very happy about. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's just a, it's a really interesting field. Every day is not the same. Um, I used to be a state epidemiologist uh, for two different states. And one of the things that always that I always loved about that is in a given day, I could be getting a phone call from somebody on a you know, state Senate committee asking me questions about the cancer registry, and then I'd get an immediate interview on the latest drug-resistant organism at a certain hospital system, and then I'd have, you know, three or four consumers call me and say, you know, I don't think we have any data on blah, blah, blah problem that I'm interested in. And it's like, no, actually we do, and here's where you can find it. And then I'd have staff issues, and I'd have, you know, a variety of other things, and that was that day. And then the next day, it'd be completely different. <laughs> and um, and that makes it kind of interesting. You always have to be on your toes. You better be uh, able to pivot. And um, and I, I like that. I like that challenge. Where where is kind of the the difference between the the working actions uh, when when you are when you are an epidemiologist, I'll say, operating in the field, mm -hmm. right? Versus uh, you know in a in a uh, educational setting where you are, you know, teaching and collecting data that's yeah. still kind of a day-to-day -day operation, but like there's a, there's a different layer to it, I imagine. Definitely. And, <laughs> uh, you know, you're so astute to get that difference, you know, so we, we usually talk about it as being, you know, in practice, that's the, when you're working at a state or local or international health ministry, mm -hmm. um, compared to being in academia. And so um, I remember one time I was on a panel with a bunch of epidemiologists 
at the American Public Health Association. I used to be the chair of the American Public Health Association EPI section, so they brought all these former chairs back to talk about the future of EPI and what we were looking at and how were we planning it. And I made some comment in the middle of that that, um, you know, I, I leave practice when the politics just drives me insane and I feel like <laughs> I can't do real science. Yeah. And then I go teach um, until the desire to just get back into practice kicks me and and I have to go back and, and get real life stories again because mm -hmm. something's going on that I just have to be part of. And the room started laughing when I said it. And the moderator, I, I kind of looked surprised and the moderator said, uh, well, I've never heard academia be claimed as not political. And I remember thinking, yeah, you haven't answered to a governor before, you know, in <laughs> uh, a state legislature, you know. So, I mean, academia does have its politics. Yeah. But, but one of the differences is, you know, certainly the, the contact and access to students. And I do love to teach, and I love to bring on the, the next cadre, the next group of students who will be the practitioners. Mm -hmm. I keep telling them, you know, if you're somebody that I want to hire after this, that's a good thing. You know, if, if I've learned enough about you and, and your behaviors and what you're able to do mm -hmm. when we're in the classroom, and I'm like, yeah, um, you might want to think about this other thing, <laughs> then that's probably not a good sign. Um, but I, I love students and I, I love to teach. I also really do enjoy doing research. And so that's one of the things that you don't have a lot of time to really sit down and do as much of in practice. It's not that some places in practice don't do research. They do some fabulous things. But in academia, you have more time for that. Yeah. And so you can actually, you know, really sit and think out your ideas and compete against other scientists to get those ideas funded. And so that is also very interesting. Um, I taught a grant writing class this summer. And uh, one of the things that was really fun for me was this group that I serve on at the Illinois Department of Public Health called Illinois Partnership for Safety. They had seen a grant come out, uh, an app, or a, a funding app opportunity come out from the CDC on adverse childhood experiences. And because everybody at the state was just going nuts on COVID, mm -hmm. they just didn't have time to be able to write this. But they knew that I had this grant writing class. And so they said, could you maybe help us? Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll help you, but can I have my students help us too? And so our students at SIU got to write a real proposal that went to CDC um, to find uh, work on adverse childhood experiences preventing them, but also having some stronger epi to, um, to know exactly what our trends are and where we need to work on prevention. Um, it was a great application. I was very proud of our students and, you know, they got a real life experience. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't get funded. They only funded four in the entire nation. Yeah. Um, I think we were somewhere in the top 10. Um, but that was still, I kept telling the students, you have succeeded even if the state didn't get this funding because yeah we were able to pull together more and more partners across the state to actually start to ask the questions, what actually does need to happen here and how do we do it? And those conversations don't just go away because you didn't get funding this time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of times CDC will fund a handful of states, often ones that already have a lot of activity in an area to start mm -hmm. to say, okay, you guys kind of are the top in this area. What can you find out that we can then push out or, or uh, apply to other states. And so 
I think that there's a very strong likelihood that we can be in tier two mm -hmm. um, and still get some of that funding. Well, and, and that's what a lot of these students are going to have to recognize. It's, that's part of why you have school, right? Is that you can do this. It's like bowling with bumper lanes, right? Yeah. If, yeah. They, if this was to be their first experience in the workforce and they felt like, oh, well, they missed the grant and now they feel like a boss is putting pressure on them because they didn't do that versus, Hey guys, we're, we're being reached out to as like almost a you know, privileged endeavor mm -hmm. uh, as students like give it a run. Now they know, Hey, here's how I'm supposed to handle the emotional stress of either winning or losing mm -hmm. in the grant process. And what losing means in terms of continuation of seeking work, in verticals versus, you know, had they won the grant, you know, now it'd be like, oh crap, now we got to administer the grant and what do we do from there? So yeah. two lines of activity that both are very valid, whether you do or don't get a grant. Exactly. And I think that one of the things that we have to teach students is how to pick yourself back up when that first try didn't work. Because I have seen in my experience, a change over time that there's just supposed to be, everyone has an A and everyone's supposed to be perfect at the very get-go. And I'm like, do you know how many times I've fallen on my face in you know, 30 years of practice? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, um, you have to be able to fall and then you, you know, what's the Google line? Pick yourself back up quickly. Uh -huh. um, you know, and it, I just think we need to have opportunities to help students um, know that. I mean, I definitely wanted us to get that grant. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I wanted that badly. And, um, and I think that uh, IDPH was a little afraid to tell me that we didn't get it. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but um, they were very appreciative nonetheless. And they would have been the ones running the grant, not the students, yeah. um, you know, if it got funded. And it was submitted by IDPH, not by SIU. We were the, the um, grant writers for them. Uh -huh. And they were the submitter and would have been the ones running the grant. Well, and it's the... the the networking stuff mm -hmm. now too, like that little story in the back of their pocket in five years, it's going to pop up and yeah. somebody that they're talking to or somebody that they're around or maybe a job interview that they're in, they're going to say, Oh, I did this in school. And somebody's going to go, Oh, well we were the ones at IDPH who filed that grant. And I, I've seen what work you've done all of a sudden. Now yes. there's that, there's that very real relationship of we've been in place together before. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and, Believe me, I, even though we were all in different locations and you know, this was being taught online or on camera um, and we weren't physically in the same place, uh -huh. I made sure that the people that we were working with, not just at IDPH, but there were, uh, you know, uh, University of Illinois Chicago was involved, uh, Northwestern was involved, uh, several uh, outside partners uh, and several state agencies actually were involved. So I made sure that they would get the students' names, that mm -hmm. they knew who the higher performing students were in, <laughs> uh, in some of that, you know, uh -huh. and I made it a point of, uh, saying, you know, they'd say, Oh, that was a great idea. And I said, yes, that was from Kyle Miller. And, uh, he's a doctoral student in our program. And, uh, he was the one that found that model that I think will really apply here. So it's really fun to be able to pat those folks on the bat and to say, you know, like you say, make that connection for them that will pan off uh -huh. or, later on. I think so. Ah, uh, well, hey, now now I'm gonna have to have Kyle on the podcast. <laughs> he's I, great. I love I love Kyle. Kyle yeah. is phenomenal. He's done a, I've, I've he's done a lot of work here. Uh, I've just had the pleasure of knowing him for for a handful of years now, and uh, it, it is it's really cool to watch somebody like get into this and then blossom like he mm -hmm. has. Yeah. Right. Like just to just to latch onto it and like be so so able to take that 
that storytelling component, mm -hmm. right? And plug himself into every data set that he goes out there and seeks to find in every piece of work that he that he does. Yeah, he's really creative. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. Um, so are, have you always been an Illinoisan or like mm -hmm. what, what brought you here? I mean, outside of obviously coming in for, for work and, and at the school, but like, was there something in particular that stood out about the community that you were like, I'll go there? Or was it really like this job opportunity is the thing I'm going for? So I was born and raised in Illinois. Okay. Um, I did go to that other university that has orange and blue That's colors. Okay. I don't, we don't have an issue with, um, with, with the University of Illinois. We don't like SEMO. Isn't that the... No. <laughs> uh, well, I was the state epi in Missouri, so I had to do some stuff with SEMO too. Um, but uh, no, I, so I'm born and raised in Illinois. My parents born and raised in Illinois. Grandparents born and raised in Illinois. Um, on the east, I was uh, went to high school in Lawrenceville. Um, and uh, when I was a kid, I used to come to uh, church camp over at uh, Little Grassy Lake, uh -huh. Camp Carew. And so that was my tie to uh, Carbondale and the general Southern Illinois area. <laughs> and then, uh, but my career has taken me all over the country and the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've really had a lot of fun working in many, many, many places. Um, but I was actually uh, coming closer and closer to home and uh, had been the deputy director at St. Louis County Department of Public Health. Great place, really interesting job. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. And my mom had moved back to Southern Illinois. She'd retired in Florida, but as she was getting older and a little bit more in need of help, my sister was living in Marion and actually my nephew and his wife had moved to Marion first. Mm -hmm. And so then my sister said, well, I wanna move there um, <laughs> and get out of Lawrenceville. And uh, um, and then uh, my mom moved there. And so we were joking about it, you know, Marion being magic, you know, that all these family members were kind of moving back mm -hmm. to the area. And I was in St. Louis and I was just driving over every weekend to see people. And so I was joking with my sister. I said, yeah, and you know, next time I see a, a job in Carbondale or Marion, I'll, I'll take a look at it. Yeah. And uh, one day I saw that the health department director position um, in Jackson County was open. And to be honest, I didn't remember Jackson County as, a, as the county, you know, uh -huh. um, I was having grown up in a different part of the Illinois. And uh, so I looked it up and I was like, oh my gosh, that's Carbondale. Oh, great. You know, that'd be <laughs> perfect. And that same day I was looking at, uh, you know, Zillow and looking at properties and I found the house that I ended up buying. And so uh, just boom, boom, boom. And it brought me back and <laughs> I was able to be here and help take care of my mom oh. through her remaining years. And uh, so that was really wonderful. That's good. Yeah, that's good. I mean, just, you know, it's sometimes life just kind of comes together in the right place. And I'm yeah. glad that that kind of happened for you and, and that this got to be got to be it um, my my first job post phd was at the university of hawaii at the school of medicine oh, um, yeah, and really? uh no. <laughs> i ran a native hawaiian health uh i was the scientific director i should say of the native hawaiian health study which was fabulous and um and it was a great experience for me to get to know uh, native culture native people um and I had to do a lot of work in the community or had to, I loved it, but you know, I was an outsider completely, 100%. Yeah. And you know, people would come up to me and they'd say like, why are you here? You know, and, and <laughs> like, where are your people? Uh -huh. You know, and I'm like, 
uh, Illinois, you know, and they're like, you know, and they're like, well, why don't you go home and serve your people? And I was like, because uh, this is Hawaii, you know, and uh, um, so it was really, it was great for me to be able to come home and mm-hmm. to say, I am serving my people. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Well, and you, the, every action that you've taken to this point is in service to what you are doing now. And that's not always necessarily the case, right? In the middle of your career, what you may be doing is in service to that point in time, right? But when you are at a point where you are able to utilize the amalgamation of all your career activities in a place where people ask you the question, well, why don't you serve? Yeah. there like this is this is the way to deliver that i i dig that i'm i'm a, a concerning question that i have for you is uh related to where where you have been in terms of uh st louis i mean do you still have colleagues that are in the st louis public Absolutely. i mean what is it like to have kind of a, a a view into their world right now i mean that all of the articles that i see about where the worst activity related to COVID in this country is right now is like North Dakota where one in 10 people has it and St. Louis County, Missouri. Well, um, I actually used to be the state epi in South Dakota. And then at one point I had um, the contract to uh, be the epidemiologist called it area epidemiologist for um, the Aberdeen area Indian health service. Uh So that was North and South Dakota, Iowa and Nebraska. Well, so the Dakotas are being hit really hard as is Iowa uh, right now. Um, and Iowa has an interesting thing going on, too, because they have some of the higher influenza numbers that are taking place early in season. Mm-hmm. And so things like masking, things like social distancing, things like continued hand washing, mm-hmm. um, all of those items or behaviors will help prevent influenza as well as help prevent COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, unfortunately, these states that have been behind in asking for people to do mitigation, um, I think, are really running into some problems. Now, the difference between that and St. Louis County or St. Louis City, either one, um, is urbanicity. Mm-hmm. And so we, when I was state epi in South Dakota, we used to get, every now and then, some foundation would reach out and say, oh, we just really want to praise you guys because, you know, you're th- you're third in the nation in terms of lowest numbers of XYZ communicable mm-hmm. disease. And I'd sit there and I'd look around and I'd say, yeah, when I was in New York City doing an AIDS research um, internship when I was a student, I would touch one handle on a bar in the subway and get exposed to the snot and everything else of more people mm-hmm. than I get exposed to in South Dakota. And a month, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people just don't understand sometimes that, especially when it's a disease like a respiratory disease, if you're not around people, mm-hmm. you're just not going to get exposed, <laughs> you know, and, and so as much. Right. Yeah. And so um, so that's some of the difference between South Dakota and uh, or the Dakotas and um, and rates that are happening in more urban places. Now, then you could say, well, then why did it take off in the Dakotas if mm-hmm. you have so much social distancing in populations? And that's because of the actual mixing that you have. So it really seeded in, in industries mm-hmm. such as meatpacking plants. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been in a meatpacking plant, but I have. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, uh, you know, first of all, people uh, rarely are separate from one another. And secondly, the space that you're breathing, and it's usually high humidity, mm-hmm. um, it is not... Um, 
or it's a little petri dish, I should say. Yeah. It's a petri dish for things like respiratory illnesses. And so you seed really heavily in certain occupations when people are still, you know, and, and if you're telling them that, oh, don't worry, this isn't really anything. Um, oh, it's, it's really not that bad of a problem. Doesn't matter, you'll just get over it soon. They're going to be out and about in the community and people need to get help. Um, I did a TB investigation once when I was, uh, or a, a thought they thought it was a TB investigation. Actually, it ended up not being, but we did have some people um, in a uh, occupational setting in a part of South Dakota where you had people coming in to who are migrants to mm -hmm. uh, that occupational setting, and they. Um, I remember working with the local public health nurse who, um, you know, again, was thinking that they had TB. And she said, but Sarah, I saw those people in the grocery store, you know, and I wanted to say, you mean those people have to eat? I mean, at some point, you, you know, if you have a, if you're thinking that something is being transmitted in a respiratory format, you, you've got to get people into care. You've, mm -hmm. you've got to find out, do they actually have it? And then you have to apply, um, you know, the right methods to treat them and to keep them away from other people when they're infectious. And, um, you know, since that time, we've learned a lot more about masking, even since uh, H1N1. You know, when H1N1, I was stayed up in Missouri, stood next to the governor announcing the first case of the disease um, in the state. And, um, you know, at that time, the science wasn't very strong about masking. And it was only from certain areas and, and mainly uh, had come from SARS, the original mm -hmm. um, coronavirus that had caused uh, outbreaks. Uh, and so, you know, and it was really in, in certain areas. And it, it was very, very urban, but very, very, you know, tight population, um, you know, contact with one another. And at the time, I was really skeptical about whether that would work here in, in um, outbreaks we have here. And clearly, we've learned a lot. And the evidence is very clear that masks do work. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's, that's good news, that you can actually do something. <laughs> um, and I, I want to empower people to realize that we have more control over um, ourselves than we actually think we do sometimes. Mm -hmm. So put that mask on, wash your hands multiple times a day. You know, we should be seeing a reduction in many different types of diseases <laughs> just by these uh, better hygiene uh -huh. uh, features. Well, and I'm and I'm interested to see if this sticks afterwards. Like I, mentally in my mind, like I'm I'm going okay. Now I understand why, you know, large swaths of populations uh, in, uh, you know, Eastern cultures, uh, you know, whether you're in in China or Japan or you know any any number of countries where mask wearing and some of these. Uh, you know, communicative protective norms were already the case, mm -hmm. right? For whatever reason it may have been, right? Whether whether people saw it as uh, something against pollution and smog, whether mm -hmm. they saw it as, as something mm -hmm. against um, actual communicable communicable diseases. Um, you know, I, I just it's a bummer that we can't get people to <laughs> to do it right now. But it's like after it's all said and done, are we going to have 50 percent of the population? It's just like you know what? This is what I do now. I just for the rest of my life, I just wear a mask. Yeah. And for everybody who's watching this, we are several feet away from each other, probably 30 or 30, 40 feet yeah. away. And when we were setting up, we were masked during that time. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, and and it's it, what what's been nice about uh, you know this space. And I've I've tried to you know I, I'm going through the same bargaining that anybody else that's trying mm-hmm. to do something in COVID is, and I feel halfway like a jerk, halfway like okay, am I my own little experiment here? It's like I I, I work when I've when I've utilized this space for. Uh, you know, say like a 10 person activity where we've spread people out at 10 feet apart and whatever mm-hmm. else. The other side I've, I've pursued is like, okay, how do we get airflow mm-hmm. in this room? So, you exactly. know, how do we dump air that is coming out of people's mouths into an outside space and circulate it straight out, not recirculate it within the space and like understand, well, what are the key drivers between, uh, you know, having, uh, you know, a disease and, and actually passing that disease on? Yeah. And that is legitimately being in static space with people exchanging only your own air back and forth. (laughs) Yeah. I had dinner outside uh, during the summer with a mechanical engineer who does uh, ventilation work. Uh uh And he's like, oh, finally, somebody understands my business. I said, yes. (laughs) And I said, finally, somebody understands mine, too. Uh (laughs) Oh, that's so that's so funny. Like how like how closely related some of these things that, you know, until you put two people in a room together and like get them talking, don't realize how. Yeah. How closely connected it is. Well, and that's one of the fun things about this type of work, too, is it can be so interdisciplinary. Yeah. And so um, I think I was telling you earlier that uh, some of my public health students in a class called Communicating Public Health uh-huh. just this week um, did a radio show uh, called Dare to Care and developed the whole protocol and the uh, script and the questions um, with social work students who are taking a policy course. Mm-hmm. And so what we were trying to do is is raise the issues of, you know, so you're looking at policy. Well, what policies do we want to be looking at right now related to COVID? Um, and uh, we, you know, the students had to kind of sit down and figure out what questions might be interesting to people in Southern Illinois, uh, Eastern Missouri, Northern Kentucky, mm-hmm. and Western Indiana. That, that was kind of the catchment area mm-hmm. that that radio show reaches. And it was really interesting for me because I kept bringing policy back up since there was the other class that was policy. And also because in public health, we have kind of three core functions, assessment, assurance, and policymaking. And EPIs work a lot on the assessment part. You mm-hmm. know, we want to count it. We want to know how frequent something is. But we also want things like regulations where you then feedback loop. Did that regulation in place actually change the numbers of the things that we're counting? Mm-hmm. Yes, no, whatever. And then the policymaking is one of the better interventions to reach larger groups of people. And since epidemiologists are interested in populations, while it's all great and good that a clinician can see the 20 people that they saw that day, you know, I'm after, you know, populations that are much larger and trying to impact that. And so um, one of the things that the students got talking about was whether or not we, there were, there were some policy changes related to COVID that might be interesting for the um the group to talk about. And so we got talking about what is it that SIU is doing to help protect students against COVID. And as we were, you know, this class started in August, you know, and as we're facing the fall and winter, okay, well, influenza, another respiratory illness, one that we do have safe and efficacious vaccines in plentiful supply, what is it that we might want to do in terms of asking the university to have a different policy on let's let's make sure that everybody gets vaccinated against influenza it's going to reduce the amount of respiratory illness 
that might be on campus and coming into the community. Mm -hmm. um, and it also reduces the burden on the health system, which is being very overburdened in many places. Plus, you know, from a selfish viewpoint, you know, in mine, in terms of the public health practice side of things, it's uh, every case that I'm not chasing for having a fever and a respiratory illness that might be COVID that ends up being influenza, everyone I can just protect from influenza and then focus on the COVID until mm -hmm. we have vaccine in a plentiful supply that we can reach people. That just saves public health some time and effort too. And so uh, we really got into some great um, discussions about whether or not the university should ask people to have influenza vaccine. And we were, you know, students were starting to do some research to find out what universities have changed their policies as a result of this co-infection or this mm -hmm. uh, co-circulation, if you will, of um, COVID-19 and influenza during the same season. So it's been really fun to do that between two different groups. And so we asked, the, the other faculty member was Dr. Drakowski, Elaine Drakowski, and, um, and she said to the students, you know, what is it that you're learning that is different about how the other discipline is looking at this situation or this problem? And so the social work students said, well, those, the students over in public health, they're really into, you know, like evidence and science. And, <laughs> and we're really into advocacy. And, and again, you know, I was like, well, we're into advocacy too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, this is how the students were seeing the difference between the two. It was interesting. They're so, I, I've got my brain pulling me in three different directions right now, <laughs> trying to figure out like which choose your own adventure part of yeah, this yeah, conversation yeah. Yeah. that I go with next. So, so cycling back to something that, that you kind of spurred in my mind up a few minutes ago, you were talking about service, serving populations, right? And looking at this from a population standpoint, mm -hmm. um, in your work as, you know, a, a, a director, uh, in, in different, uh, positions for, for public health, uh, entities, did you have a passion going into it saying, I'm going to seek out work with indigenous and migrant mm. communities? Or is that inherent in the work because they are exposed communities, because they are, uh, you know, communities that are that are more tightly knit, uh, you know, not just from a from a social perspective, but from a, you know, labor perspective where they where mm. they are forced into spaces that are much more likely to see communicable disease than than not like is mm. there just that that component of public health is these folks um that's a really interesting question and my mind's also going about three different directions right now too <laughs> and take your time We're so <laughs> so one of the thoughts that i have is that um i definitely have always been drawn to where the problem lies. Uh -huh. And so in that way of looking at it, you would think of, you know, epidemiologists should be focusing on things that um, where we have inequities mm -hmm. and trying to make it more equitable. Everyone has access to health um, kind of world. Um, and yet I've worked in different communities where I've also had people challenge me and say, uh, Sarah, you know, you're looking at us from a deficit. You know, and even within our group, there are people who are doing better and the people who are doing worse. Mm -hmm. And so why aren't you asking the question about what predicts who's doing better versus what's predicting who's doing worse? Mm -hmm. And so I've actually done some research on that as well. 
when I was in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, uh, that's the two-year post-PhD or post-MD fellowship that CDC has that is the one that's in the movies like Contagion and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, you know, I was able to, to ask some of that question, and that was really um, interesting for me to do that. I've always liked um, helping people, and, and I always I, I like being where the problem is to try to help solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the problem is in people just like me. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, I am looking at other people because you're the problem or you're the situation or whatever. I mean, often I'm the problem, I'm the situation. And so um, there has to be a lot of cultural humility when you mm -hmm. do really good public health. And um, I have erred at times, I have made mistakes. I have been forgiven more times than um, <laughs> than I deserve yeah. to be. Um, but it it keeps pulling you back. And so, at, uh, when uh, Governor Pritzker got elected, I got a phone call to consider being at IDPH and um, in a certain role. And one of the people interviewing me asked me, um, you know we have some health inequities in the state of Illinois that are really impacting African-American populations disproportionately. And are you willing to be committed to solving those problems? I said, you know, of course. I mean, uh, you know, what is it about my background that would make you think I wouldn't be? And, um, and I was trying to explain to this person who was not an epidemiologist that epidemiologists <laughs> try to look at the data from every different, I call it slice and dice, mm -hmm. and um, you know, every different perspective. Is it age that is increasing the risk? Is it a, a physical um, uh, susceptibility that is causing the risk? Is it um, social, cultural, you know, this group of people is not allowed the same access mm -hmm. to care or to jobs or to safe and healthy housing, you know? Um, and so I said, I, I look at, I, I feel like I'm always looking at things from trying to say, okay, who's who's missing from this picture? Who's getting the worst outcome um, or being exposed more? And so I said, you know, of course, I would be very willing to do that. And they're like, well, how are you going to sell that in Southern Illinois? And I said, well, it's not that there aren't commonalities, even if you're looking at a um, a population that might be more Caucasian, for instance, you know, um, let's find one of the threads that's the same. Is it education? Is it poverty? Mm -hmm. Is it access to care? You know, th th I said, I don't think that there's going to be a problem at all. Um, I actually think that Illinoisans in general are fairly um, kind towards one another and, and want to be strong and want to help build each other up. That's how I was raised. That's how I used to explain when I was in New York or Hawaii or whenever people would say, well, what's does that flyover state actually, you know, what, what's your culture? You don't have any yeah. culture there. You know, and I, I'd be asked, you know, what's your culture? And I'm like, caring. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm from a small town and, and people had to help each other and they had to know, you know, they knew my grandmother and grandfather and my uh, aunts and uncles and, uh, well, I mean, not uncles, but, um, and uh, other people in my family. And, you know, I didn't want to be an embarrassment because everybody knew me <laughs> and knew all this, you know, family, but, um, you know, we wanted to be, to help each other. And 
there was a sense of nobody makes it completely on their own. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, there was a strong, strong pat on the back if you did well, you know, be that A student, that's a good thing. So it's just, I, I think that there's a lot that can happen in Illinois that is really um, us helping each other and understanding um, who is at risk at a certain time and who isn't. So I've done a lot, for instance, like with the opioid epidemic. Uh, one of the epidemics that was causing a lot of problems prior to the pandemic of COVID-19. And, you know, I remember when I was in St. Louis mm -hmm. and also working on opioids there, I had a, a woman who was in her early 50s, African-American woman, who said to me, why is it that you guys are interested in opioids now? When my brother came back from Vietnam and had an opioid addiction, nobody cared. But now that it's white college kids who are on the soccer team in an NCAA school who then dies of an overdose, now you're concerned? And I think that was a valid challenge, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and there are a lot of people, segments of people, groupings um, of um, thoughts and ideas which uh, make people vulnerable or make them in the group that isn't allowed to have the same voice. Mm -hmm. And I do think that it's part of our job in public health to always find that and to give voice to that and to uh, be empowering, not as a paternalistic, here, I'm doing this for you, mm -hmm. <laughs> but rather we're all in this, I hate to say it together because that tends to be a cliche now uh, yeah. in COVID, but nonetheless, from a public health perspective, you are looking at the population. And and this group might be doing just great right now and flying high and um, and and you know economically well, and that's great, but that doesn't mean that they're not gonna be the ones that are down here later. Mm -hmm. And so again, back to some humility, it's like uh, we all die eventually, and so how do we uh, move through our lives in a way that is as healthful as possible that is not taking away from others, but rather building up. The the idea of cultural humility that you brought up is is just so highly applicable across uh, you know educational, social, industrial spectrums mm -hmm. right now. Right, like that's when when people get upset because they feel um, as though they're not being heard the way that they are themselves speaking it's because we're we're missing that and somebody will come back and and launch a, a, a you know an attack of oh well political correctness why do you have to hold to this it's like no no what we're asking for here is exactly what you said cultural humility just to bring yourself down or raise yourself up to that same level that somebody else is at. Meet them where they are. And this was a, you, you've, what's nice about this conversation, when we talked a little bit about this kind of being the, the medical weekend for the podcast, yeah. there, there's a lot of crossover in uh, the, the things that you've discussed here and what uh, Jeff Ripperda, whose name I probably just mispronounced again, mm -hmm. but neither here nor there, talked about yesterday. And it's interesting, a, a handful of different crossovers. Um, you talked about kind of viewing uh, your, your activity from uh, you know, this broader data set of, you know, people as groups mm -hmm. uh, versus a, you know, clinician seeing it as this group of individual, you know, 20 individual people that there may be some sort of thread there, but they're still just individuals at the end of the day. The other really cool perspective uh, that, that we're able to juxtapose between the two of you is, um, you know, 
the the interest in the care for opioid Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, issues in, in this country, but also more specifically just right here. Yeah. Um, Jeff r- runs a uh, addiction treatment clinic mm-hmm. of sorts uh, on, on opioids. So when he was talking about that and now you're connecting that, I'm like, oh, cool. It's all just coming right together. Like, yeah. it's just, it's. And that hasn't gone away because of COVID. And I think yeah. that that's one of the things that we have to realize. Um, I saw some, a statistic yesterday that COVID-19 has now caused more deaths in the United States than any other cause of death, which is just heartbreaking. This is a disease that wasn't in this country at this time last year, and now we've had more deaths due to it than anything else. Um, And yet uh, opioids are still, you know, addictions don't go away just because, oh, by the way, there's an infection circulating also. And so um, there is research taking place in Southern Illinois. Um, There are several of us working on a project with the University of Chicago and with um, School of Medicine at SIU in Springfield uh, that's looking at opioid addiction in Southern Illinois um, and trying to work on interventions that will be useful and keep people alive and unaddicted, um, helping move folks into recovery. But that's been really tough on folks. And it's just not like that addiction just goes away, you know. And uh, certainly for anybody who is struggling with that, um, all of this isolation that we're having from COVID, which you and I talked a little bit about beforehand, Mm -hmm. um, is is changing, you know. The ability to to work together sometimes in, in ways to help prevent death due to opioids and, and to reduce the impact of, um, of that um, addiction. So we have a lot of work to do. And I think that this is why, you know, just like with H1N1, just like the post 9-11 anthrax cases, mm-hmm. um, you know, epidemiologists become kind of something that gets talked about. And there used to be this New Yorker cartoon that said, oh, how f- very wonderful of you to invite the epidemiologist to dinner. And and that was, you know, some soiree that was after <laughs> 9-11 when the uh-huh. anthrax cases were being investigated and several ones about H1N1. And I saw one recently uh, where they were talking, uh, somebody goes into a bookstore and the the books the guy working there is saying, oh, you know, these books have been moved here and these books have been moved there and the epi books have been moved into self-help because <laughs> everyone's now an epidemiologist. And and so I thought that was kind of funny. Um, I'm glad that people are learning more about public health. I'm glad that they're learning about epidemiology. I know that this uh, time in the spotlight will wane yeah. and, you know, will go away again. Um, and I'm okay with that. I think that people in public health tend to get pretty familiar with working in the shadows and Uh working kind of behind the scenes. Uh, But what I do hope that we learn from all of this is uh, maybe a shift in um, some of our priorities and a better understanding of how we as a society work together to either make things better or worse for each other um, and that we can hopefully shift some of our funding more towards prevention mm-hmm. um, and not wait until we have completely dismantled after the Ebola uh, scares of a few years ago. Um, we have to realize that, you know, whether it, the next thing is climate change or, you know, one of the things we've been seeing is in terms of trends of data 
in the United States that's very upsetting to me is we're going backwards in um, in years of life lived um, in overall longevity. And uh, the opioid epidemic has been a spurring part of that, but so has an increase in suicides. And so um, we have many different issues, whether it's behavioral health, whether it's communicable disease, whether it's chronic disease, um, you know, that are, that are causing problems that are having us have shorter lives. Um, used to be that every single generation lived longer than the previous one, and we're going the wrong direction now. And so um, what do we need to do as a society to make sure that we turn that again to being able to live longer lives, better lives during that length of life? So we got a lot of work to do. It's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's, I mean, to, to be able to shoulder, I mean, this is, to me, some of the clearest arguments for, you know, healthcare as not a business, right? Mm -hmm. Like public health as not a business, but like a service, not from the government to the people, but the service of people in service of one another, right? Yeah. Like the key <laughs> actuating <laughs> word in the phrase is not health, but is actually public yeah. in my, in my mind here. I like that quote very much. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. Um, I used to have people say to me, Oh, you work in that field that, you know, it, you do healthcare for the indigent. And I'm like, well, Whoa, okay. <laughs> um, and I'd say, well, you know, there are 10 essential services of public health. Uh -huh. And one of them is ensuring that, that care is given if it's not available in the rest of the system. So, you know, yes, that, that's still on this 10 essential services. And I said, but did you breathe air today? You know, did you turn on your tap and, and drink water? Uh, did you go to a restaurant and not get food poisoning? So, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of things that happen that um, our public health that actually do impact every single person, whether you're high socioeconomic status or, um, or not. And so I, I think that um, it always gives me a, a sense of honor to be able to serve a certain population. So when I was state epidemiologist in South Dakota, South Dakota is very rural and frontier. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the things I learned and loved about the state was just there's a really strong, hard work ethic. You know, people really don't ask a lot. Mm -hmm. um, they just put their head down and work. And yeah. I remember one time I was I'd flown in on some, you know, overnight flight or something. Uh, and, of course, you can't fly into South Dakota a lot of times. So I think I'd flown into Nebraska, mm -hmm. um, into Omaha, and then I was driving home from there. And it was wee, wee, wee hours in the morning, and I drove into state, and I saw people out harvesting, you know, in the middle of the night mm -hmm. out there harvesting, and I just got uh, filled with this great sense of, you might not even know the word epidemiologist, but what I do every day, I'm doing it with the intention that you have just as much of an opportunity for a great, healthy life as I do, as my children do, as your neighbor does, who's three miles away, by the way, and, you know, um, et cetera. It just, I loved that sense. And I knew that when I crossed that state line from Nebraska into South Dakota, it was like, these are my people. They may not know me, um, you know, all 753,000 of them at that time, <laughs> you know, uh, but it 
it's a it's an honor to be able to serve in that way and you do um spend time thinking you know oh my gosh am i am i doing the right thing um at, is my ability to see what's coming next or handle this problem um good enough for the people to you know if you make a mistake it's really funny because you know you, you see all the tv shows where the clinician has the patient die and they're they're you know, pulling their hair out, like, it should not happen. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's the young clinician, and the senior clinician tells them, you know, it's just something you have to get used to. You yeah. know, you try your very best. And I, I used to say to my husband, I said, yeah, and I do that for millions of people. I mean, um, you know, it's – and people would say, oh, Sarah, you're too serious. You're too serious. You know, what you do is you sit in a desk job. Um, my kids <laughs> would come to the the daughter goes to work days with uh -huh. me, and they'd come home to, to dad, and who was a dairy farmer, and it, they'd say, and he'd say, "What'd you do today?" And she's like, "Mom sat in front of a computer, and then she talked to people, and then she sat in front of the computer some more." <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, okay, that's that's good, you know. But the, the idea is that you know, in doing that, you are trying to help make it an even playing field, so that everyone has a chance for a healthy, um, and you said actualized life. I like yeah. that. You know, that's what it's about. The, um, what are, so you said there are, there are 10 principles of public health. 10 essential services. 10, ten essential services. Yes. Educate me. Okay. Oh, goodness. Um, I probably won't remember <laughs> on the, spot. the all if they're, imperfect, if they're not there, all we need to Google order. them later. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to no, put no, you on the spot um, there. So, for instance, things like... Um, you know, one of the ones that epis get called on, on on a lot is, you know, to to measure, um, you know, what's happening in the community. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, there's a lot of assessment um, in that. Um, being able to mobilize mm -hmm. um, features of uh, that community and the community and the people in the community, the organizations within that community, um, researching um, new and better ways to do things. That's essential service number 10. Mm -hmm. And that's one that... Um, I don't think it's enough um, enough attention because, for instance, um, you know, when I was stayed up in South Dakota, it was at the turn of the century, mm -hmm. and I, you know, it's a small enough population. I actually had a people saw me on TV and and in the radio and, uh, a lot and uh -huh. in the newspaper a lot, <laughs> and um, and so. It was kind of weird because it was like, you know, I'd be in a gas station. People are all like, oh, you're busy, you know, and I'm like, because I have an empty gas tank. And they're like, no, because I've seen you in the paper. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, wow, cool. Um, but <laughs> anyway, I, I had gone to my boss who uh, was the health officer for the state and had a bachelor's degree in political science. Uh -huh. So not exactly a science background. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, I just want to send something out to people. We're approaching, you know, Y2K, et cetera. I want to send something out to people that would be just emphasizing these 10 essential services of public health. And so she said to me, educate me. So we went through it. I had my list with me, so I you know, <laughs> got the names right. But um, I went through it, and I got to essential service number 10 about researching new ways and better ways to uh -huh. do things. And she said, well, you can you can send them out something with the first nine, but we don't do number 10. <laughs> and I'm like, well, actually, I think we need to be, yeah. you know, and even if it's not the health department that does that, it's the partnership with the, the academic centers that could do it, mm -hmm. anything that we do. And one of the things that I really enjoyed doing in St. Louis County was like working on lean principles, was looking at how do we do this better? And there's a thing called the Public Health Accreditation Board, FAB, 
and um, health departments since about 2010 have been able to go through this accreditation, mm -hmm. kind of like hospitals have done for many, many decades. Mm -hmm. Public health departments have been doing um, since about 2010. And some states had accreditation programs before that, but it went national. And I've been part of that, that effort, and I'm a site visitor and whatnot. It's been really fun to do, and I learn something every time I go out on site. But FAB kind of organizes what they ask of these health departments along those 10 essential services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having the infrastructure that you can, you know, evaluate what services you do, et cetera. But an underlying theme of all of that is quality improvement. And so we should never be exactly where we were before. Mm -hmm. We should be always adapting. And it doesn't mean that you don't take those principles forward. It's just population shifts, you know, shift, and um, and diseases shift, and what we know and how we can do our work changes. And so one of the things I was trying to build for SIU was a course on innovation and entrepreneurship in mm -hmm. public health, with this idea being that, you know, it, it's real easy in a governmental entity to kind of get things so ingrained that it, this is how we do something, mm -hmm. and this is always how we do it. Mm -hmm. And so Here's the next person in my role. I hand the baton to you. I teach you exactly how I did it, and now you do it the same way. Consistency is not a bad thing, but you always still have to be seeing what is new about the scenario that you're facing. What's that situational awareness, and how do we do things in a better, more efficient, more comprehensive way? Mm -hmm. Um, to me, that's exciting. That keeps me, you know, energized um, in my career to think about new and better ways to do things. Which do you think is a bigger barrier to admittance or success uh, of making these changes? Because I, 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 from a from a outsider looking in perspective, I, mm -hmm. I see two really big things. One being uh, right the the slow moving pace of of standards and and regulatory practices right the uh, you know the actual system institutional mm -hmm. component of it the other being public sentiment of being uncomfortable simply making changes and making the policy changes that they need to move things further along do you do you yeah. see one as as a as a greater barrier to success than another do you see one as not as much of a barrier to success i guess as well so I think that it has to do with um, some of it has to do. It, it depends on kind of what what part of public health you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So it, the more granular you get, the more to the local level you get. I think some of the issue is going to be different than at the higher levels. Mm -hmm. Meaning higher meaning just up up the chain hierarchically, not yeah. necessarily better. Just different scope yep. um, and so at the local level I think what my experience has shown me um, here and elsewhere you know um, I've been on a board of health when I was even in the EIS I got to sit on my local board of health mm -hmm. and and see how a health department is run from that perspective um, and I think that one of the problems public health has run into that we're always trying to work on is, you know, hiring people who actually have training in public health. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned how a state health officer had a bachelor's degree in public health or in um, in political science. Mm -hmm. You know, in the past, that would be somebody with an MD. You know, it's a lot of difference in perspective mm -hmm. 
you know, somebody who's got a bachelor's degree in political science versus somebody who has a medical degree. And so I, I think that having a workforce that is trained in public health obviously helps them feel more able to um, to adapt and change because it's less that I handed you the baton and this is all I know about it. Um, I used to have somebody in, when I was at the state of Missouri who ran a very large division of communicable disease. Mm -hmm. And when I was getting to know him, I mean, I hadn't hired him and I said, tell me about your experience, where'd you go to school? And he got really nervous, you know, and, and finally he said, Sarah, my only training is I was in the military and during Gulf War One, I set up some of the screens um, for some of the, the bioweapons that they were afraid were gonna be released. And so th this was the, the actual equipment to capture any of the organisms that might have mm -hmm. been disseminated. Um, and I, I was like, okay, well, th that's useful information, but it also helps me understand how that division may not be focusing as much on some of the other areas of science that that person hadn't had a lot of experience with. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is not to put somebody down for what experience they do have, it's to say, okay, where do we need to fill in or yeah. um, how do I meet you where you are? And then also still broaden some of how we're looking at things. And so um, I think that often in local health departments, this is some of the problem that we run into is here are the, the 20, 30 people that you've gathered and some of that public health training hasn't been available. Now we do have, for instance, at SIU, we have a undergraduate degree in public health. And um, when I was in public health training, there were only two universities in the country that did undergrad. It was only considered a professional degree at the doctoral or master's or doctoral level. Mm -hmm. And that's changed over time. And so now we do have undergrad programs. When I was at St. Louis University teaching there, that was one of the fastest growing undergrads um, programs that they actually had. Um, it was pretty amazing. So we have that here. We also have a master's in public health and SIU most people are not familiar with as um, a health education PhD program that uh, it used to be in the 80s, the largest health education PhD program in the nation. Mm -hmm. You know, and so we have this history here that is can be really useful mm -hmm. for disseminating a lot of this knowledge by bringing people into these degree programs. We also have a system, and this summer, we, uh, several of us faculty were working, uh, we have a new president of the SIU system, mm -hmm. and so a bunch of us um, were working together to say, okay, here's what SIU Edwardsville is doing for their master's program in public health. Mm -hmm. And this is what SIU uh, School of Medicine in Springfield uh, they do a lot of research and they're really great at getting research dollars for projects in public health. Mm -hmm. And then here's the academic programs that we have here in Carbondale. And so what are the things that we can teach this new president of the system and also chancellor here, you know, about that we could do better by doing it together, mm -hmm. uh, having the campuses work together. So that's exciting to me because I think that that will also help us you know, reach out into practice and say, how, how can we meet your needs? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that is, well, I, I have just got to work to get Austin and, and, and Dan both on this podcast at some point. I, I figure I build up with enough credible folks like yourself <laughs> and eventually I get to a threshold of like, all right, cool. He's had 
four deans and a couple of this and some, you know, just uh, different, different, um, uh, different, really, really knowledgeable, capable people in their realm at the at the school on, and then eventually they'll they'll kind of come in here. And and I think that kind of what you've touched on there is something that people in the past week were, oh, Dan Mahoney's going to move to Springfield and live in Springfield and run the system from there and breaking with tradition of not being at Carbondale. It's like, hey, first, <coughs> excuse me, um, the guy said that when he first got hired. Like, this isn't a surprise. It's not like, oh, I'm just springing this on you now. It's like he said this eight, 12 months ago, whatever it was when he first came mm-hmm. on board, like, hey, my plan is to six months Carbondale, six months Edwardsville, rest of the time in Springfield because he knows where he's going to try and pull strings from and try and like get resources allocated across the system. Like mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. Like if you are a state funded university, where do you want your president to be fighting to get resources for the entire system? Well, you want him to be in the state capital and doing that. Right. Um, you know, the other side of it, recognizing that no matter where, uh, you know, he is physically as president of the system, he's able to see these intersections and then find ways to, Again, bring the system closer together and work with everybody to pool up those resources and make a greater value proposition to any student that looks at SIU from any perspective, a SIU Carbondale and SIU Edwardsville or a medical campus Springfield mm-hmm. perspective. I, I think, yeah, sorry. You just, you put me on a soapbox right before yeah. I was ready to like <laughs> pull the curtain on the show. And then I was like, oh, I got to say this, just get it out, Nathan. Uh, All <laughs> so, good. <laughs> thank you for that and um thank you for tuning in to episode 30 of the wtf carbondale podcast uh, sarah patrick mass masters of public health phd thank got, you so much got, <laughs> just make sure i got that one right i'm so bad at like the acronyms and people's names and I, like all the things that like should make you a good host. I just dropped the ball on those, but the conversation's always great. <laughs> yeah, uh, have a good one folks, whatever that one may be. <laughs>